If you have not been with us, let me catch you up real quick. We've been in this series called More Than Consumers. And for just three easy payments of $19.99, we let you listen to all of these on Apple. No, I'm just kidding. They're free. Apple Music, Spotify, if you want to catch up, please join us uh, in, in listening back to those so you can be caught up for next week. But because it's this week now, and I don't want you to listen to it while we're preaching now, we're going to go ahead and catch you up with what you need to know from the first two weeks. So week one, we talked about this idea that when we walk into a store, who's the first person to greet you, right? It's the person who works there, and they're ready. They're, they're, they're just so quick to be in your face with it and be like, can I help you find something? And we talked about the fact that, that above all things, ultimately, like all of us are looking for something, but above all things, we should be able to find an answer in Jesus. Jesus says as much in John chapter 4, where he says, if you only knew who you were asking, You would ask me for a drink, and I would, of course, oblige, and you would never be thirsty again. And then last week, we talked about how our faith then becomes active. We're no longer expected to just sit quietly and, 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 and wait for the teachings of the worship to come, across, uh, to come across our lives. We're not meant to just uh, sit on our hands and just, and just consume as much religion as we possibly can, but our faith is something that's meant to be activated, if you will. And our faith becomes more activated and it even becomes a richer experience when we become, rather than a consumer, we become a contributor in the body of Christ. And now as we become more engaged in our church, our consumeristic culture can potentially cause us to have some unrealistic expectations of perfection. Perhaps you've made a step and you said, okay, I'm going to be a part of a church. I know this is something that God biblically demands, and so I'm going to commit. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be a regular congregant, uh, a member, or whatever terminology you want to use. I'm going to commit to a church. But then because of the consumeristic culture we've, we've naturally adapted to in our country, we've gotten to this place where we assume and we expect a crisp, clean, perfect product to be delivered and spoon-fed directly to us. Amen? Amen. Yeah, you're already thinking how bad you want to leave and go to lunch. I get it. I get it because I'm coming for you today. Listen, this leads to expectations of perfection, perfect worship, perfect praise, perfect pastor, perfect presentation. And when those things aren't meant, that's when this little thing that we call a sense of entitlement decides to kick in, and we believe that we deserve something better than what's being portrayed this Sunday. We believe that we deserve something that fits our personal preferences, that will meet our personal expectations. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be, we're just going to jump right into it, right? I'm going to be super real with you guys. This concept and ideal is not, I'm not calling any one person out. This is not unique to any one of us. This is something that we have to navigate growing up in America. But this concept and this, and this sense of entitlement and this, this expectation has over the past three years that our doors have been officially, uh, ecclesiologically open, Um, has been especially defeating to my wife and I. Because here's the thing, Rachel and I feel called 
to lead a a Christ-centered community that is unified in its diversity. It's unified in its diversity, but because there is no one particular culture that we will allow to dominate and force all others to assimilate to, that means that somewhere along the line, one of each of our preferences or expectations will not be met. Because we're trying to be unified in our diversity, that means, guaranteed, no questions asked, every single one of us here will have to lay down at least some of our preferences in worship in order to be together. And that's really hard. Let me keep it extra real. Not everybody has the maturity to, like, to do that. Not everybody has, has the posture to be able to do that, that comes with tension and struggle. Even with the person sitting next to us, as maybe 10 minutes ago, they were expressing themselves in a way that was a little foreign to you or was something that you don't regularly practice and you don't know how it it really fleshes out theologically. So the question actually becomes, how do we work through missing out on some of our personal preferences in order to fight for an expression we believe in, which is one that is unified in its diversity. So church, as we continue to lay down our consumeristic ways, I would like to encourage us this morning to let's just take just a few minutes to evaluate our own posture within the church this morning. Can we do that? I need you to know that I'm not calling any one person out. This is, this is something that we are all to some extent guilty in. And so I'm asking each of us to go internal with this one and ask the Holy Spirit to check us and say, in what ways have we contributed to this? If you brought your Bibles with you, I would, I would invite you to join me in the book of Philippians. It's one of my favorite books. I was a sports ministry major, so of course it is. You'll get that reference in a little bit. But we go to the book of Philippians, and we're going to specifically look at the second chapter. If you've got your Bibles, it's, it's a rather thin book towards the back. And, uh, and you'll find chapter 2 that's indicated by the big number 2. And we're going to go ahead and start at the beginning. So just find that big number 2. If you don't have your Bibles with you, uh, that's okay. We got it right up here on the screen for you. We're going to read the first two verses uh, together to start our time, and then we'll pause. So here we go. This is the book of Philippians. This is chapter 2. This is verses 1 and 2. It says this. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me, the apostle Paul, truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Now we're going to pause right there. This is an introduction to a bigger point that he's, going, that he's going to make. It's a segue from what he just talked about to what he's about to talk about. And so we're tempted to gloss over. But the danger that you'll often hear me talk about of casual reading is that we miss some richness that's in these first two verses of chapter 2. See, what we need to know about the, the pretense of this, of this passage is that the Apostle Paul is dealing with some issues within the church that gathers in the, in the city of Philippi. 
He talks in chapter one about some of those issues and, and, and he uses a, a specifically athletic word to describe the tension and the struggle that exists within, within the culture. He uses that word not only because it's an, athletic, it's an athletic field culture, it's one of three or four locations that actually would host Olympic style games back then. And so he doesn't just use it to appeal to their own culture, but he also uses it to more appropriately uh, give us the imagery of how bad this tension in this struggle actually is. See, this isn't just like some uncomfortable arm folding and like, oh, I don't know, this is a little yucky. This is more like competition. There are people within the church that have divided up into teams or, I don't know, let's say parties, if you will, and they're, and they're not just bent on their own way. They're bent on proving you wrong as they prove themselves right. And now there is division that's being caused in this church because people are like, people are like, not only are you wrong, but I'm right and I'm going to fight you to be able to carry out my way. And the other side is like, no, 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 no. Hey, audience, you guys see what they're doing here? They're clearly being jerks, but allow me to participate on this level and continue to fight fire with fire. That's what's going on in this church. And he's like, before I can even get to your attitudes and poor posture, before I can even get to that point, allow me to remind you something. He asks a rhetorical question or makes a rhetorical statement. He says four things. First of all, is there no encouragement from belonging to Christ? Let me back this up a second. You have received the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ within you. Have you not been encouraged by that? Are you not encouraged by the fact that while you were yet still sinners, Christ came at just the right time to come and get your punk self? Are you not encouraged by that? Are you not encouraged by the fact that while you were going this way and all this way was doing was leading to your own ultimate destruction, he came down and set his gentle but almighty hand on the crown of your head and said, no, nah, no, nah, son, go this way, tapped you on the back of the head, and now all of a sudden you're living the blessed life? Is that not, is that not encouraging? Have y'all forgotten that part? He said, let me continue to point number two. Is there no comfort from Jesus' love? Christ loves the church. He loves it so much, as a matter of fact, that rather than snapping his all-powerful fingers and doing the work himself, he chooses to enlist his church to make up himself on earth and to do the work of redemption. Is that not one of the most loving things you've ever heard? Is there not love that you experience from being like-minded with the person? Okay, yeah, maybe y'all have some different preferences. Maybe you look a little different. But is there no love that is expressed by being unified with Christ? Amen. I was at a wedding this past weekend. And weddings always make me think of my own wedding. And if, if you've been married, you, you, you have this picture in your head of, of what happened. You stand up in front of everybody, and there is, and there is love and there's sacrifice that's expressed between a bride and groom that, that allows them to come together. And then you're surrounded by all of your friends and family who are joining in this love, not because they're getting married to you, but because they're like, yes, I'm so for this. I'm so in support of this. I love this. Is that not the way the church was set up to be? 
Was every time we were together not meant to be a love ceremony? Is this not how it's supposed to look, guys? It says, says, is there no fellowship together in the spirit? Do you not know what it meant for the Holy Spirit to come into your life? Have you not felt the ministry of God's transformative power within you? Have you not been able to, to rejoice and share in the fact that you're a different person because you received God's spirit? And then doesn't that spirit also live in the person across the party line from you? Doesn't that spirit also reside in your brother or sister that you're so angrily defaming? Let me go one more just to like really get you. Are your hearts not tender and compassionate? Do you share in the sympathy of Jesus? Like when Jesus looks at us and he sees people so desperately and deeply fallen and in such humongous need of a savior, he has compassion, he has sympathy and that drives him to do something about it. Do you not share in that same sympathy? Do you not know these things, guys? Do you not remember these things? Has it been so long since you've received the gospel that you haven't felt this in a long time? Rather than simply telling the church, y'all being childish, bear your differences, kiss and make up, he reminds them of who they're called to be in Christ. Paul turns attention towards God's will and intention for the church. And he says, if all this is true in verse two, if you can affirm these four things, if you're all like now convicted and you're like, yes, you're right, Paul. If you can affirm those four things, then he says, make my joy complete by actually expressing that. Make my joy complete by acting upon these realities. There's this quote that'll be up on the screen. It's by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, the delight, talking about the delight we have in praising God and things of that nature. He says, the delight is incomplete until it is expressed. Think of it, think of it another way. Think of it in terms of a funny joke. You delight in a funny joke, but you really can't like fully delight in a funny joke until you turn around and what? Tell somebody else that joke. Like you might have heard it. You might have received it. You might have seen a funny video on your timeline, but you don't get to express the delight that you had in seeing that funny video until you turn to the person next to you like, yo, you got to watch this, right? If we delight in what the Lord has done in our lives, then that praise we feel in our heart is incomplete until it is expressed. That's why some people praise and worship the way they praise and worship, because their praise, their blessing, what God has done in their life is incomplete until they do whatever it is that God compels them to do, like dance it out, sing it out, shout it out, cry it out, kneel it out, pray it out, whatever you got to do. That's what they've got to do for their joy to be complete. 
This is why worship leads us to physical and emotional responses. This is why we respond when we hear the reading of God's word. Our praise is incomplete until it is expressed. So Paul says the completion of the joy we, see, we receive from Jesus, this looks like his people actually fellowshipping, hanging out together. The expression of the joy God has given us looks like us actually loving the person next to us, even when it's really hard and they're being stupid. The expression of the joy God has placed within us actually looks like us, despite our differences, working together for one common goal set by the creator. That's what this is supposed to look like. I got three points for us and then I'm out your way. Point number one, we need to adopt a posture of unity. Does the joy of sharing in the good news cause you to get along with other people? Does the joy of sharing in the good news cause you to love other people even when it's hard? Does it cause you to work alongside other people in order to accomplish God's will? Let me make it more plain. Does the joy of sharing in the good news stop you when you feel as if your lips and your tongue is about to indulge in some gossip? Does the joy of sharing in the good news stop those little Twitter fingers just before you hit send? Let me give you some advice. Save his draft. That's for free. Does the joy of sharing in the good news lead you to adjust your bad body language when you blatantly disagree with something? Does the joy of sharing in the good news allow you the motivation to press through some of the obstacles we got to get through in order to adhere to unity in the body by any means necessary? We're just getting started. Look at verse 3. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 starts this way. Says, don't be selfish. Oh, jeez. No, we're not gonna stop. We gotta keep going. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Y'all didn't know Paul said it first. Wasn't Kendrick? He says, be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests. This isn't a dating tip, this is a life tip. But take an interest. In others too. Paul is getting real specific in his address to the church in Philippi. He's like, look, y'all, I know all about your pettiness. Y'all don't think I know because I've been traveling. I'm the gospel globetrotter and I've been all over this place. But believe me, I got ears everywhere. I know all about your pettiness. Y'all lucky Twitter and Instagram don't exist or I'd have been back here to address y'all stuff. I know all about what y'all doing. I know all about it. There is this trap that I'm afraid that you've fallen into in forgetting the gifts of the body of Christ and instead falling into this trap of your own personal entitlement and vainglory. 
I know this is a proud athletic culture. It's only natural to be expected when people get together, right? Somebody is going to push forward with an idea that fits their skills or their styles. Somebody else is going to use some sideways energy to make known that they don't agree. Then maybe somebody else is going to start another thing that's really the same thing, just done a little differently, but it's that subtle difference that's used to, that's used to divide the community. And then, of course, in order to find out who's is best, because in athletic culture, like, we got to make it a competition, we're going to slap some measurable goals on top of it to find out who's the biggest, who's the best, who's the largest, who makes the most money, and who's got the crown. Because don't you know that in a race, everyone runs, but only one wins, isn't that scripture? It's a gross misuse of it, but we'll talk about that another time. Paul's reminding the people in Philippi of this countercultural word called humility. Believe it or not, humility wasn't always considered a virtue. When Jesus said it, it shook the foundations of the earth. You mean the goal is not to obtain a crown that is temporary and will fade away? You mean the goal is not to be the best musician in the band? You mean the goal is not to have your word hit more people than all the other people's word, you mean the goal. You mean to try and tell me that the goal is humility. Letting other people say it for you. You ain't got to boast. You ain't got to puff your chest out. You puff your chest out about anything. It better be the fact that you've received the good news. Humility recognizes that ultimately we are created beings. And so that therefore in, you want to talk about comparison, let's go there for a minute. In comparison to the one who must have created, we ain't nothing. We ain't nothing. Therefore, in terms of the people around us, who are we to be trying to one-up the person next to us? Who are we to compare and contrast? Who are we to try and gain one over the other? We're all pretty insignificant if you really want to get technical. Moreover, in classic Pauline rhetoric, Paul loves to do stuff like this. He says, I'm not going to leave you with like, put this one down. I'm going to tell you what to pick up. I'm not just going to tell you what to take off. I need to tell you, your naked, shameful butt, what to put on. He says, I need you to let that lens go, that self-seeking lens, that lens that says, this is your time. It's now. Go get it. All, with, all, with all costs, just, just go for it. This is about you. Go ahead, put that one down. And what I need you to pick up is one that says, everybody else should be considered greater than I. Pick one up that recognizes the interests, the giftings, the perspective, the needs, the passions, the roles of the people around me. Rather than first needing everything to fit your own preference, what if we actually considered the people that we need to reach? Humble yourself before God because ultimately you can't do anything without him. And then let that input impact the way that you look at the person next to you because God sees us together. He doesn't see a hierarchy. Yes. 
Point number two, we need to adapt, adapt a posture of humility. In what ways have you brought a posture of entitlement into the church? Have your preferences become idols? How have those idols prevented you from valuing other parts or expressions of the church? We live in a world where you can like completely customize your life experience. Some people have more privilege in that than, than others, but that's for another time. We live in a world where you can completely customize your own experience. Our streaming television networks now let us choose what channels we do and don't see because it's so difficult just to scroll past one. No, I don't even want that one to show up. Take that off my TV. Or give me all the sport. Like, we want to we customize everything right down to the T. We live in a world that allows us to customize what news shows up on our phone. To customize what biased piece of information we receive and the way we receive it. We get to choose which side we want to sit on. We even get to choose now our school. You don't like the school you go to? You ain't got to put up with it. You can go somewhere else. You can pay to go somewhere else. You can open enroll somewhere else. You want to go to college? We got thousands of options. Find every little detail out about every possible school and choose which one best fits you. And then when you graduate from said prestigious university, you don't need to like work your way up. You get to choose your dream job and then expect it to come to your doorstep. That's amazing. But when we bring that consumer posture into the church, it becomes damaging and divisive. Fine, go crazy, right? Like, customize your whole life. Pick the gender of your baby. That seems weird to me, but whatever. Participate in all these these customizations. But when you bring that to Jesus, when you bring that to the church, it's damaging and it's divisive And dare I say, it's even demonic. God's preference is the only one that should matter. And God's preference is lived out through Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. God's preference is lived out through Jesus. And Jesus lives a humble and obedient life by serving in whatever capacity God designs. And don't you dare look over into somebody else's lane and tell them how to or not to be obedient because that praise isn't for you, it's for God. Let's look at Jesus' posture. Verse 5, go back to it. Verse 5, you want to know what God's preference is like? Look at Jesus. He says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. 
When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. This is pretty wild. In the midst of arrogant arguing and incessant pettiness, Paul says, be like Christ. Not simply by looking back at the beautiful words and deeds of Jesus, but by receiving the spirit of the one who lives and is active now. Allowing the spirit to inform your very posture and and make steps forward in unity and humility. And in case you've forgotten, this is what I mean, Paul goes on, by having the same posture of Christ. He's like, let's break this down. My man was God. In his original form, God. At the, creator, at, the, at the creation of all things, Jesus' role was God. There ain't no denying that privilege. There's no denying that power. Jesus could breathe and life would come. He could speak and it would be so. He could walk and things would fall. No denying that privilege or power. But it says he took said privilege and said power. And he laid it down. He had every right to remind people that he was equal with God. He had every right to snap a tree right out of existence. But he laid that down in the name of humility to become a man. And do you know what happens when you become a man? Women, I know you can tell me, you experience all kinds of limitations. The rest of y'all get that on the car ride home, it's fine. (laughs) Jesus laid down his almighty power to experience the very limitations that we succumb to every day. Jesus dealt with lust. Jesus dealt with anger. Jesus dealt with greed. Jesus dealt with all the same things we wake up with every single day and yet stayed obedient, stayed the course. And he was so obedient that he took it even to the extent of death. Not just death, but like the most humiliating, pun intended, death of all time. Stripped naked beaten for days, scorned, spit, torn apart, then hung on a cross to bleed out in front of a whole lot of people that ain't even really realized he was telling the truth all along. That's embarrassing. That's humiliating. And yet even to that extent, Jesus went there. Is that really what we think of when we think of being a Christian? Is that what we think of when we think of being a part of the church? Do we think of being that humble? Final point number three, we must adopt a posture of Christ. The posture of Christ, who in the Garden of Gethsemane was so stressed that he was sweating and crying blood. Because so badly, he did not want to go through what he was about to go through. He did not want to go to the cross. 
That's a pretty stressful situation. You think your bank account's stressful? Jesus was so stressed that he said to God, if you can, if it's okay with you, let this cup pass from me. Let, let, let this not be the way we accomplish this. But if it's your will, man, all right then. We all come from different backgrounds which allow us different privileges and amenities. And our macro culture constantly advertises to us that we should be able to have anything we want whatever way we want it. But if we're really going to be a Christian, meaning to have the posture of Christ, have we truly looked at those things as something to be laid down or even leveraged for the kingdom as opposed to something we have the rightful entitlement to? That's difficult. Church, we got to make this clear. Our calling and responsibility here is to bring spiritual enlightenment and to meet the tangible needs of our city. That's what we're going to do. We're going to bring spiritual enlightenment and we're going to meet the tangible needs of our city. It is not, nor will it ever be, to meet the preferences or desires of any one member or group. This has already brought and will continue to bring a whole lot of friction, a whole lot of hurt feelings, not many of which are rightful. But we refuse to let the devil leverage the consumeristic culture we've all grown up in to help us believe the lies of entitlement or self-seeking glory. We must continue to work through all the difficulties that come with being diverse to serve an ever-changing demographic in our city, in our country, and in our world. The only question I have in closing is will you join me in attempting to lay down the thoughts, preferences, and desires that are my own, that are our own, in order to take up a posture that adheres to unity, humility, and the obedience of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.